the end zone and Thomas. He holds it in. It's going to be a Saints touchdown. I am coming live just north of Buffalo, New York, in North Tonawanda. 70 degrees, and I didn't even need to artificially chill it this week because it's fall in Buffalo. What's up, guys? It's Steve Bennett, the Sportscasters. Season 8, Episode 12, back-to-back weeks has me pumped up. Uh, Great show for you today. Two debuts. Connor Orr from the MMQB, a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, is going to make his debut to talk about a pretty cool piece he wrote for the magazine about Sam Darnold and Josh McCowan and QBs mentoring people. Paulo wants more iced tea, but I already gave you more iced tea. It's out on the table. Go get it. <laughs> so Connor Orr is on the program today. Also on the show today making his debut is Scott Burnside. Uh, guys had a pretty interesting career. He wrote about the NHL for about 15 months. He was working for DallasStars.com and writing for a team. Uh, And then he was plucked out of the corporate world of the NHL and back to the Athletic, uh, where he now is a writer at the Athletic for their national hockey coverage. Him and Pierre Lebrun, I think, had that. So Scott is going to join us to talk mostly about a feature he wrote about the great Jack Eichel. Uh, I was actually watching a little bit of the Sabres' first preseason game the other night, and Jack Eichel, man, did he score a goal. Whew! It wasn't even the goal or the move that really popped me. It was just his stride, which was unbelievable. What a skater he is. Getting really excited for Jack Eichel, and we're going to talk uh, to Scott about that. Also on the program today, we have to update the book club. Um, we got to talk about football for a buck, and we have to talk about the last days of Letterman. And uh, we also have to talk a little bit more about Jane Levy's book. I spoke with Jane last night. So we have some progress on that that we have to get to uh, as well. I haven't really thought of a topic for one last thing. I will say that I've been trying to make one last thing a little bit more personal uh, the last few weeks. I want to really give at the end of these shows some kind of a glimpse into who I am and what is happening in my life. I'm not sure if anyone cares, but it's in the perfect spot for that at the end if you really don't care. You can just bail out after that second interview, right? So I really want to try to use that spot. It's maybe a little bit cathartic for me to get some things off my chest now and again. Uh, But I want to use that spot to talk about things that are pretty personal to me. I know last week I tried to talk a little bit about uh, Pearl Jam concerts and try to put into perspective why I loved going to them and going to so many. I think I did a so-so job about that, doing that, but not as great as I wanted. Uh, a few plugs, of course, you can always follow me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, the podcast is hosted by SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash sports underscore casters. Uh, you can also find the podcast on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. And again, if there's anywhere you'd like this podcast to be and it's not, just reach out, email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll try to set it up where you like to listen. Also, don't forget about my butter, my buddy Peter Winson. His show, Greetings from Allentown Pod. I was listening to it before I did this. 
Uh, he's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter, uh, and he has a new episode this week uh, about WCW 1994. So check out Peter Winston. Uh, I was speaking to him yesterday on text because I started watching Survivor Series 87 in preparation for the next Adams Division podcast that I do with Peter. Uh, and the next, the fourth installment of the Adams Division podcast is going to be ranking Survivor Series 87 to 98. So, so far we have uh, broken down my list of top 100 WWE superstars. We have looked at WrestleMania's 1 to 14 and SummerSlam's 88 to 98. And next up will be Survivor Series 87 to 98. So we ended the WrestleMania one with a show that Peter attended, WrestleMania 14. And now we'll end Survivor Series with a show that I attended, which was Survivor Series 98 Deadly Game. So I think what we'll do is hockey first. So we will take a break and we'll come back with Scott Burnside. And then after that, I'll be on the other side with a book club update. So we'll take a break. We'll be back with Scott. All right, our first guest today is a national hockey writer for The Athletic. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today, and I'm super excited to have him on. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Scott Burnside. How's it going, Scott? Doing very well. Thanks for having me aboard. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're definitely a guy I've always wanted to reach out to. And then finally, after reading the Eichel article, I'm like, all right, now's the time. Um. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were talking a little bit off 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 air about Buffalo and and the way the city has progressed and the way we spent the Pagula money and you know, I part of me still knows like that in my heart that the most the best 89 million dollars of his money we're ever going to spend is the money we're spending on Jack Eichel right now. Tell me just to get started like just your general impressions of 2018 Jack Eichel as he stands as a human being right now. Yeah, I mean, it was really it was interesting because um, you know I was at the draft when Jack was selected to two overall, and spent a little bit of time around and covered the World Cup of Hockey back in 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 my days when I was with uh, ESPN, and um, you know there was just always something just a little. I don't know whether uncomfortable is the right word or not, but just, you know, maybe it was a comparison to Connor McDavid and that, you know, this constant harping on that theme, which is natural, but he, there was something, you know, you, you could tell that he grew weary of that. In fact, I was, it's now that it's coming back to me. I was in Buffalo for Jack's first training camp. I was doing a bit of a tour and I was in Buffalo, I believe when camp opened and I'd known Dan Bilesman from his days coaching and winning in Pittsburgh. And, um, of course, Jack was, it was a huge story, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. that was an important sort of, you know, moment for the Sabres and turning things around. And, um, again, really not on for discussions about Connor McDavid and just a little, you know, just a little aloof. And, and so, and then that's always the danger when you parachute in and out and same kind of thing, covering the world cup of hockey. And he's, of course, was part of a dynamic Team North America roster. But, you know, my pals who were covering that team were like, yeah, you know, Jack just still seems a little bit, 
you know, sometimes he, you know, it felt like he was annoyed at having to deal with the media and, and put up with questions and, you know, all those kinds of things. So two weeks ago or a couple, certainly, you know, a week and a half or whatever before the start of training camp, uh, the NHL gathers its top players uh, annually. It used to be in New York every year. It's been in Toronto and this year it was in Chicago. And, and uh, Jack Eichel comes in and sits down, and he he could not have been more forthcoming. He could not have been more jovial. He could not have been more introspective. And and it, as it turned out, it was it was he and I for a fair amount of our interview time, and we talked a lot about buying his new house, his first ever house that he's bought in downtown Buffalo, and it's close to the arena, and how it's important to him, and really sort of extrapolating on some of the changes that he's gone through and what he's hoping to accomplish moving forward and knowing that he's going to be a role model and someone who's going to have to be, you know, maybe uh, a leader for the entire group, but especially the young players and the guy like Rasmus Dahlin and um, Dahlin's living next door and they've driven together to and from the rink. He's made Dahlin drive and like just very engaging. And I know my colleagues and I, as soon as Jack left, uh, it, it might have been one of our, you know, that we would, there were a lot of really good conversations over the course of two days here, but it was one of the most enlightening, I felt, for a guy that seems to just be so much more at ease and, and comfortable in his skin. And I, I'm with you. There isn't, you know, Dolan's going to be great. I don't think there is any dispute about that. But this is Jack Eichel's team. And I think maybe this year is the first year we're really going to see take ownership of that. And even though he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to talk about it like this is going to be my team, but I think he gets it. And I and I'm fascinated to see what happens for Phil Housley in his second year and some of the moves that Jason Botterill has made. And you know, this is a team that's been waiting for some good news for a long time. And I think uh, if it comes this year, it'll come because Jack Eichel is 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 really growing into his role and growing into his skin as the franchise player in Buffalo. You know, honestly, it's been really fun to watch him grow up. Um, my brother's last ever college game was actually a 3-2 loss in overtime in the NCAA tournament to Jack Eichel and BU. And um, kind of watching him that day and knowing, like, okay, this is probably going to be the guy because Buffalo doesn't win lotteries, right? Like, that was our attitude here. I know a lot of people – this is a thing, like, in, uh, there's a misconception that – okay, take Tim Murray out of it because we know Tim Murray in his head thought we're throwing this season for Connor McDavid, right? But if you live in Buffalo, if you're a true Buffalo hockey fan, like we made up a word called McEichel, and it was so important for us to finish last, not to get McDavid, but to guarantee that we would get McDavid or Eichel. Sure, everyone wants the first pick, but if you live here, if you grew up here, we all knew that we needed that hedge because we don't win one out of four lotteries, right? Like that was our perception i know people don't understand that because people just look at the reaction of tim murray and think like oh all of buffalo was so disappointed maybe to some degree but we still felt like winners because the goal all year for the fans and for the community was let's make sure we can get one so we get jack and he comes in and you know if you compare you know he hates to do it the comparison with Connor mcdavid but you know Connor mcdavid had a you know a future NHL MVP on his team with him there, you know, where Jack didn't have that. That's why I'm really excited for Dolan to, to be able to come into this team and have Jack in the locker room with them, you know, and to know what it's like to be an 18 year old with the burdens that Jack had on him uh, in this city. Um, you know, because it's a lot like a, like playing baseball in Boston or New York or playing football in green Bay, you know, like the Sabres are as big here 
as any team anywhere. So the pressure, you know, it's like, you know, maybe if you get on Carolina as a number one pick, you can you can blend in a little bit. You know, you, the pressure maybe isn't as great, but in Buffalo, it's huge. So I've been really excited to see the way Jack has matured and watch him go from you know Matt Molson's roommate to the homeowner on the waterfront in this beautiful house he bought from Doug Whaley. Yeah, well, and you know, here and his, you know, to me, the you know Connor McDavid is, is. I mean, there's no question he's a generational talent, and there's no question that what he's accomplished with, you know, back-to-back scoring titles, and uh, you know, he's just he's been he's been as advertised, and um, but you know, and, and when the Oilers go to the playoffs, <laughs> sorry, two years ago, they go to Game Seven of the second round, and and I fell into the trap too. I mean, I liked Edmonton to go to a Western Conference Final last year. I just thought that they were going to arc steadily upwards. Well, it didn't happen that way. And I think there's, you know, we can't compare what Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel have accomplished on the ice just yet. Um, but I think there's a cautionary tale with, you know, we, we think that it's, you know, it's not a straight line and it's often going to be a zigzaggy type thing. And certainly, you know, Jack Eichel is very candid about it's been really hard, right? It's been hard go for him. He's a guy who's used to success. He's a guy who's used to be playing on really good teams and leading really good teams. And it hasn't been a very good organization, right? They haven't made good personnel decisions. No. They've, you know, you can quibble with the coaching choices and, um, you know, now, now this is, you know, the, the, there's a lot of people under the gun this year. You know, Jason Botterill's in his second year, and I like a lot of what he's done in, in the offseason. He's gotten younger and faster. I, I don't mind the Patrick Berglund uh, ad. I think you do need some veteran presence. And he's a guy on a team in St. Louis. You know, that team's never – they've never got over the hump where a lot of people expected them to get to. But he's played in a lot of playoff games. Um, I think the – you know, you're still going to find out about the goaltending. The defense is probably still not there yet, but there's a lot to like about this team. But there's also a lot of pressure on a lot of guys. And I and I, my sense of Jack Eichel is okay. It's all right. Bring it on. I, I'm okay with that because let's. It's time for us to be better, and it's time for us to stop. You know, being what we've been the last three years, and I think that it's going to be. I think they're one of the most fascinating teams in 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 the Eastern Conference, and of course, you know, they play in. The, a terrible division, right? I mean, right. That, yeah. That's a that's a yeah. boneyard, the Atlantic Division. So, you know, who knows, right? I mean, there's there's, you know, who knows what happens? They're playing in a good place to to maybe take a step or two forward and maybe be playing meaningful games in February and March and maybe giving pause at the trade deadline. You know, do you add or do you stand pat as opposed to trying to sell off and. Um, you know, that's, I, I think that's what you hope for is that you, you, you know, you, you start to change the culture and you start to play games and test yourself against really good teams with lots on the line, you know, at the three quarter mark of the season or the, uh, you know, two thirds mark of the season or whatever it is. Yeah. A few things I want to react to that. First, I think that Bottero had a great off season. I thought he was at that. I've been with them on everything. You know, I think they did a great job even today with the with the bridge deal that they signed uh, Reinhardt to. I thought they did a great job with that. I thought he's had a great summer. And, it's, you know, the, the nice spot they're in, I think, as a team is that it's been so bad that if they can just be, you know, say in February and into March, six to eight points away from either the wild card or the last spot in the division – you know, just kind of being a borderline contender, but playing fun games like 
play fast. They look like they're going to play fast. And, you know, let's see Jack make a jump. Let's watch Dolan maybe have a rookie of the year type season. You know, let's see what Middlestack can be in her, his first full season. If we lose by one goal, let's at least have it be 5-4, not one nothing. You know, let's get, get a little buzz in the building again. And I think they'll win the city over just by doing that. You know, so I think they're kind of in a good spot that way. Like, I don't think people are going to be like, well, they didn't get 98 points. They're awful. I don't think that would be the, the perception. No. Well, and I think you touched on it. I mean, it's a, it's a marketplace that is has always really understood the game. And it's a marketplace that has really understood, the you know, the value of, of their teams when they've been good. And, you know, it hasn't been all that, you know, it's been pretty sporadic since uh, the first two years uh, out of the 0405 lockout. But... Um, I think you're absolutely right. They're going to see the value of the team in the, you know, the quality of play, the style of play, the effort that's given. Um, if because they're a little too young on the back end, um, you know, I mean, where is, you know, what is Carter Hutton? What is he? Right. You know, is he is he Scott Darling or is he Martin Jones? What you know, where does he fit into the continuum of guys looking to establish themselves as an NHL starter? Um, but if he is a starter, and if he is what he showed for so much of last year in St. Louis, then okay, yeah, I think I think you're. I don't think it's too much to ask to have those kinds of moments in February and March where you think to yourself, "Holy cow, if we, you know, we win seven of." Ten or whatever it is, you know, we can be right there. Like we can, you know, we're in the mix. And I don't think that's, you know, if you're Phil Housley and Jason Botterill, I mean, you, that's you. You have to be. You want to see how those players respond to those kinds of moments. You don't want to be buried in November and going, oh my, like how how are we going to get through the next fifty five or sixty games? You just you can't have that again. And um, you know, my sense of ownership, given how we've seen them operate in, in you know, but with both teams is that you, you don't, you don't get too many cuts at the plate uh, before, before things need to change. I think this is, this is really important year for, for a whole bunch of people on a whole bunch of levels within that organization. Let me ask you this about Jack. One last thing on him. Maybe you asked him this and he answered it to you, or maybe it's just a perception you, you have either way, but do you think it's important to him that Housley and the team puts the C on his chest? Or do you think that, if they do do like a three A's or something like that, you know, he's, he'll be okay to be part of a leadership group. Or do you think it does mean something to him for them to say, all right, Jack, here it is. You know, this is your, even if it's a symbolic gesture, like here's the C, you know, you got your number nine now, you know, this is the Jersey for the next 10 years in this city, the C on the front, the nine on the back, and let's put a few banners up, you know, like, is that important to him or, or what do you think? Yeah. It's funny. We never even talked about it. Not, you know, I'm not one, like, I'm not sort of, like I, I could care less whether uh, Austin Matthews or John Tavares wears a C in Toronto. Like I think it's an, you know, I think it's, I think there's a certain much ado about nothing. Although the, di- you know, the media dynamic in Toronto, you know, I'm, maybe it'd be better if Tavares wins wears the C. Um, but the, I will say the interesting part of this is I was in Carolina for training, the starter training camp, and I was there in the morning that Rod Brindamore. Um, I know this is all bad uh, memories for all <laughs> Buffalo fans, but anyway. So, I, but Rod Brindamore named Justin Williams captain, and they had done a rotating captaincy. I think it was Justin Falk and Jordan Stahl a year ago, and the rotating. They did sort of like a rotating thing under Bill Peters, and I think there was a feeling in Carolina that it was really important that Justin Williams got the C. It may be important to Jack Eichel, 
And when you look around the NHL and you look at Connor McDavid and you look at the the young age that guys like Jonathan Taze and Sidney Crosby um, were tabbed as the captains of their respective teams, franchise players, high draft picks, um, I think it makes sense. And and to me, it doesn't make sense to give it to them just because you don't want them to be mad. But maybe, especially given that he just seems to be in a better place, maybe this is the perfect time to do it. Like, why not do it? Um, you know, I I didn't understand the contract extension at the time of it, but to me, this makes a lot more sense timing wise to make him the captain um, than maybe even the you know the contract extension. So um, I think I you know he is whether he wears the C or not, he's the man in Buffalo, so right. he might as well be wearing it. And I I think it might be strange, but I think it's important to to the city a little bit, just because I think we are. You know, just to make up it, you know, we lost both of our captains on the same day in 2007, you know, and since that day, we haven't dug out of that yet. And we haven't had a guy, we haven't had a captain since Drury and Briere left on July 1st, 2007. We haven't had a guy, you know, and I think it will mean a lot, you know, to the fans and to the city. And I think to Jack too, uh, for him to be the guy after these first few years of his career and, and the expectations and watching him grow up and the injuries that he's had. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it would be important for him, but like you said, it wouldn't be the right thing to do it just because you're trying to, um, to appease anyone. But I, you know, the thing for me with captains, I just hate the hedge, you know, like either name one or don't, I don't know. I hate the like, Oh, we're going to have three A's. Like that's just even dumber to me. But anyway, uh, we're talking to, uh, Scott Burnside from the athletic. Uh, he's at overtime Scott B uh, on Twitter and, uh, he's the national uh, one of the national hockey writers for The Athletic. Uh, real quick, I'll get you out of here on this, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about The Athletic because you've covered the game um, at a local level um, and a national level for ESPN and also at a team level uh, for the Stars, and now you're in this new thing, this, I don't know if I want to call it an experiment, but it's almost like the 21st century digital version of what Frank DeFord did back in the day. You know, this like unbelievable sports page that just has all these guys and all this content and you know, I, like I joked yeah. with someone, I was like, you know, I've I've never, I've never been so entertained on the toilet as I have been since the athletic. Like I never take, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just open that app and it's like, all right, you know, five ten minutes, let me pound four articles out, you know, and it's like, you know, I finish. It's like, well, I was done in here five minutes ago, but I was still reading the athletic. Uh, what do you think about covering the game for the athletic and how your job so far has been different or the same? Like I was reading your stuff today. And I just felt it was really fun. Like I would go from this cool piece about Eichel to like previewing the Panthers to like a Q&A with Tyler Hall to like, you know, this awesome piece on ref development. So it seems like you have a lot of leeway to do all these different things. But instead of rambling, I'll let you talk about it. What has it been like just kind of doing what you do for this place and, and how they've kind of deployed you? Yeah, well, there's no question there. There is no... I don't think there are any parallels to it. And, uh, and, and, you know, having spent 13 years at ESPN and, and covering the game nationally and going from place to place, um, you know, the dynamic was different because there was this, you know, depending at the staffing apex, there might have been five or six of us when Katie Strang was there and Scott Powers in Chicago and Joey Mack in Boston, of course, Pierre and Craig Custance and, Pierre Lebrun in, in Toronto, and and then you know we got whittled down, and so there wasn't you know, we could sort of do what we wanted, and there was a broader canvas, 
Um, but now the athletic, the, the great thing about it is that we, we now, as you and I are talking, I think we have reporters in 30 of 31 markets. We just hired a, a woman who's going into Carolina. I think Vegas right now, as we're talking, is the only place we don't have a beat writer or at least one beat writer. And so what it does when, you know, for someone like me, the challenges to find things that, um, you know, sort of augment or complement what's going on in every single market. And so you're looking for access stories. You're looking for, um, uh, you know, opportunities to talk to really high end players and maybe get them away from the rink. Um, you know, my trip to Carolina was great. I got to sit in on Rod Brindamore's first meeting with his team at the start of training camp, and so that was really cool. And spent some time with Scott Darling, who's in a critical year for both he and uh, and and the rest of the Hurricanes. So those are the kinds of things, and it's finding stories that maybe are a little bit different or a little bit more off the beaten path. And and so it really does. I mean, that's a challenge. You want to you've got to engage your brain to think of well, where what would I want to who's the person I'd like to know more about or who is someone that has an interesting story to tell or was what's something compelling that we can get into that maybe no one else is doing or doing in a fashion that no one else is doing. So um, from that standpoint, it's been pretty terrific and it is fun. And, and, and I know cause I'm old, but I've worked with almost everyone that we've hired at the athletic and um, there are people I respect a, a tremendous amount. You know, I think of the work that Katie Strang has done, you know, covering really hard topics, uh, the Nasser trial in in Michigan, and a lot of attendant, um, you know, uh, stories of uh, sexual assault and recovery, and how institutions handle those kinds of things—really hard, difficult things, but really important topics. And it's, I'm proud to be part of a team that isn't afraid to do those kinds of stories. So it's—I uh, just all I'm hoping to do is hold up my end of the bargain. That's all I'm hoping to do. Yeah, and I love you know, like as a fan. Like, let's say, what, the Sabres open against Boston. Boom. Who's the athletic guy in Boston? Okay, there he is. Let me click on him. Let me look at the last five Bruins stories, see what's going on with them. You know, then I can read you, can read Pierre, get a little national spot. You know, if I want to look at uh, Vogel or one of the Sabres guys, see what's going on with my team. It's just all there, one place, really great stuff. The hires have been amazing. I was a little disappointed, no dater in Colorado, just because I think that guy is the Babe Ruth of Colorado avalanche sports writers nobody knows more in the world about them than him but overall i think it's a great service and i really enjoy it and it was great to be able to get to know you and finally have you on um and i only asked you for about 20 minutes so i don't want to push it uh one more time it is it is at overtime scott b on twitter um at the athletic nhl um uh, to find more about that of course you can read he has an awesome piece on the uh nhl officials like had a little combine in buffalo which is really cool. So check that out as well. Anything else you want to plug, Scott? I think I think we've done uh, an admirable job of plugging. And you know, <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's uh, you know, it's always fun. We actually, Pierre LeBrun and I were just it's we're just getting it up, and we've been a bit of a rocky start with it. But we we're reviving our podcast. It's called Two Man Advantage. So uh, you know, once you get your your fill of uh, of Sabres talk and stuff like that, and you've, you've got a you know, you got an extra trip on your car or you've got an extra thing to do in the kitchen, you could always listen to Man Advantage as well. And uh, there you go. F- help fill up your day. But, uh, no, it's been fun. And, and thanks for having me on. And, and I hope you'll hope you'll call any time. We'll it'll be good to catch up, you know, mid-season yeah. or whatever you want. That 40-game mark, 50-game mark, we can reconvene and see where we're at. Sounds good. I'll hit you up then. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. 
Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Thank Scott Burnside for being on the podcast today. Snuck in a little shout out to my boy Adrian Dater there. What's up, Adrian? Adrian's going to be in Buffalo soon. Speaking of in Buffalo soon, Bob Seeger announced a farewell tour uh, that is going to be making a stop in Buffalo in January, and I will certainly uh, be there. Uh, the book club today, uh, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL by Jeff Perlman. It is out there in stores, and Jeff is out there doing interviews. And the number one thing I've noticed about the promotion of this book so far is that nobody really wants to talk about anything with Jeff other than Donald Trump and Donald Trump's role in this league and what Donald Trump screwed up and what Donald Trump might have done okay, but really what an idiot Donald Trump is. And look at we should have known he'd be a horrible president because look at how bad he fucked up this league and – that's basically the promotion of this book. And Jeff should do whatever will help him sell books. Number one thing. I'm all about it. But I know that when I get a chance to talk about this book with Jeff, I want to spend a lot more time on all the other great stuff about this league that is in this book. Uh, hopefully we won't waste a lot of time here talking about Trump because you can do that anywhere. Uh, the Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan. Is also another book. I'm working through this one right now, reading it. Uh, such an interesting perspective. You know, Letterman is working again, and he did his Netflix show, which I was a little disappointed in. I wasn't a big fan of it. Even the Howard Stern interview, I thought, again, just way too much time on Donald Trump. Just why I didn't get it, didn't love it. Howard is so, it's so rare to get him to sit down, especially for an hour. Uh, and to waste even any of it on Donald Trump just seems silly to me. Uh, so I didn't love that. But what I did love is uh, Dave is the executive producer or something like that on the new Norm MacDonald show. I think it's called Norm Has a Show on Netflix. And that is awesome. I watched like three episodes of that and I love it. Uh, so check out check out Norm there. Uh, one other thing to mention on the book club uh, is I spoke with my friend... And a friend of this podcast, Jane Levy, last night. And Jane has a new book coming out. I think I may have mentioned it once. But she has a new book coming out called The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. It comes out October 16th. Uh, but I guess it goes to print this week. So I should have a copy or two in the mail soon. And I can't wait to read it. Because one, uh, Jane is one of my favorite people in the world. Two, uh, her book, The Last Boy by Mickey Mantle, is one of my favorite sports books of all time. Uh, And three, I just can't wait to promote this with Jane. Jane's throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium tomorrow. I'm recording on Thursday the 20th. She's throwing out the first pitch on Friday the 21st. Uh, So best of luck to Jane. I think I mentioned to her, just don't baba booey it and you'll be fine. Um, Hopefully the Mick is is there in the stadium. The spirit of the Mick, her guy's in the stadium and guides that pitch for her. But I know she's worked incredibly hard on this book, The Big Fella. uh, And I can't wait to talk to her about it. All right, so three things. Again, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL by Jeff Perlman, The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan, and Big Fella, 
Babe Ruth and the World He Created by Jane Levy, October 16th. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Another review, Connor Orr from the MMQB, a staff writer at SI, is going to join us to talk football. All right, our next guest is from New Jersey. He's a graduate of Sports Illustrated. He's covered the NFL for the Star-Ledger. He's also covered the NFL for the NFL, and he now writes for the MMQB and is a staff writer at SI. He's making his first appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Connor Orr. What's up, Connor? How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing really good. Thanks so much for uh, for responding on the reach out. Uh, I reached out to you. Hey, be careful how I worded that. Uh, just thanks for for getting back and, and for being on and uh, being a first timer on the Sportscasters. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do it. We have to kind of rebuild some. You know, we got we started in 2011, and uh, our, our our most uh, appeared guest is now an NBA front office executive. So the door is wide open to any newbies to uh, to break Jenkins' record of 20 appearances. That's amazing. That's and I was so excited for him when I heard that. That's oh, so like, was I. It, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Lee at all? No, I mean oh, just nicest just reading him. I mean, yeah, you know, nicest dude. Yeah, 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 nicest dude. Like I've been doing this since 2011. And he's like in my top three. Him and Damon Hack. I don't know if you ever met Damon. He's another like super nice dude, and it's like so many nice guys. So, but um. Man, I was reading your piece on the uh, the mentors and the quarterbacks, and uh, I'd read some other things you've done in the last year um, since being an MMQB, and I was like, oh, it's time to reach out to Connor, so so thanks a lot for doing this. Oh, cool. Well, thanks, sir. Uh, thanks for reading. I really uh, appreciate that. Uh, so before MMQB, you were at NFL Media, correct? I was, yeah. I did uh, three years at, uh, at NFL Media, and then before that... Uh, four years at the uh, Star-Ledger in Newark. Right. Okay, so that kind of leads to a somewhat obvious question I'm curious about. So, yeah, so you're at the Star-Ledger, so you're writing for the league for a paper. Then you're literally writing about the league for the league, and now you're writing about the league for Sports Illustrated. How, <laughs> like, how is it different? You know, like, did you feel any difference in writing for the league when you were working for the league? And now, like, did any of... Any of the maybe associated pressures or, or any of the restrictions? or I don't even know what the right way to put it. I think you probably know what I'm getting at better than I'll be able to verbalize it. But how, about, sure. yeah, how about the difference in writing for the two? Just to kind of give us some perspective on that. So I think that you know, my editors at the NFL were awesome. Um, you know, they were really open-minded about stuff. They were really cool. I think just the time uh, that everything occurred, you know, I kind of left. Um, right after, um, well, I guess my last year was really the, the first year um, that Kaepernick started uh, protesting racial inequality and, and social injustice. And, and so I think that just put, you know, our operation in a little bit um, of a tough spot because, you know, we had people like Steve Weiss from, a lot of people forget Steve Weiss was the one who broke the story from NFL.com. Right, after the preseason um, that, game, right? That Kaepernick was kneeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah during the preseason. Yeah. And uh and so, you know, we were definitely on top of it. I just felt like, you know, there were definitely uh certain people who, you know, at the at the high end of the food chain who were able to 
to really verbalize their thoughts there. And not that I wasn't, you know, that nobody ever said, no, don't do this, don't do anything. But my job description was just a little bit more, um, you know, stick to the meat and potatoes, I think. Um, and, and that's always kind of what they had asked. And so, um, but, you know, during that time, I mean, I had some awesome feature editors. I had some some really cool um, people that I worked with. And so I, I really liked it there. And I kind of said that, you know, that really this would be the one place I'd want to work. The only place I'd leave for um, is Sports Illustrated, kind of never thinking that that would happen. And uh, when they called one day uh, saying they had an opening, it uh, it completely blew me away. It was It was one of the coolest moments of my life. Was it Peter King who called you or was it someone else at the time? So I heard from uh, Jenny Rentis, who okay. um, we were, uh, she, I was actually her backup on the Jets beat at the Star Ledger. Um, and she, you know, can't say enough about her. I mean, you know, she taught me everything um, that I know. I mean, she's just the ultimate professional. She's such a good writer and reporter. And so I was so lucky to be able to uh, to work with her. And I was like, man, I would love the chance to work together with her again and to work with guys like Robert Klemko and, uh, you know, uh, all these different people, um, Tim Rohan and just all these really talented young writers. And so she called and said that, you know, Hey, we have an opening, not sure what you think about it, but send your application in. And, uh, you know, I think it was three weeks later, um, or four weeks, maybe like a month later, I was, uh, you know, signing my papers there. So it was, uh, it happened really fast, but, uh, but I, you know, that's, that's kind of how it works sometimes, you know? So now with, uh, with the, with the, you know, with a microsite like that, then ultimately is Chris Stone still the one that hires you or what's kind of the hierarchy when you work specifically for, I I mean, I know like your, your current piece that we're going to talk about at some point is, you know, in the magazine anyway. So it's obviously just because you write for MMQB doesn't mean you don't cross over to the magazine, but I mean, is that that for sure? Yeah. yeah. So I I was brought in with a staff writer title. So, um, so it's kind of, you know, Basically, they wanted me to to write as much for the MMQB as possible. Really have kind of a daily presence um, on that site. Mark Mravik, who's um, the executive editor right. um, of the MMQB, uh, he was the one I kind of met with the most and talked to throughout the process. I give him a lot of credit because it was it was such a chaotic time in my life. We had just found out that we were my wife was pregnant. Um, I think she actually called me to offer me the job, like. A day after we found out that the baby was healthy and then we were also taking the dog to the vet and we thought the dog was sick. And so like, I was just a basket case when he called me and, uh, you know, but, uh, it was, it was cool. I, I give them a lot of credit. They could have run away knowing how, uh, how weird I was uh, <laughs> during the interview process. Uh, I have to ask you, where were you this summer when you heard that, uh, Peter King was going to NBC? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I really didn't know until until he told us, you know. Um, and, you know, obviously it was a bummer because, you know, it was so cool to be able to work with him growing up reading him. You know, I've been a subscriber to kids, started subscribing to kids in, I think, 95, and then, you know, SI, regular SI, um, starting in maybe 99, and then through, through today. Um and, you know, he was one of the people that, you know, you dream about working with. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, he totally lived up to, to all of your expectations. I mean, what he had done for my family, what he did for me um, in the six months that we worked together was just like so above and beyond anything um, 
you know, that you'd expect. And so, you know, everyone was like a little bummed at the meeting, but you could tell that he was happy and that it was, was a new challenge for him. And, uh, you know, he, he loves, you know, kind of trying to push the limit and to try new things. And so, you know, you never want to, uh, you know, you never want to hold anybody back from doing something like that. So I think it was just a mix of like, you know, bummed out, but obviously, uh, but really happy for him too. And I guess you look on the bright side and say, Hey, if I get this job 10 months later, I don't get to work with him at all. Right. I mean, cause my experience with Peter King is pretty cool too. I started this show in 2011 and my, you know, my thought at the time was I'm just going to ask everyone. I don't care. You know, all anyone can do is say yes. And I, I reached out to Peter uh, and he's like, well, I would probably do it, but I don't even know what a podcast is. Cause it was pretty early. <laughs> he's like, what do I have to do? <laughs> and I'm like, all you have to do is answer the phone. He's like, all right, I can do that. Like he was totally cool about it. And, um, you know, and a couple of years later, you got a podcast that probably does 30,000 more downloads than mine a week. So hats off to him. But, <laughs> but like, he was a totally cool guy like that. And I was like, you know, when you're, when you're a no one and you're reaching out to guys like Peter King and his only question is, is what do I have to do? I think that just kind of says something about his character. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've done tweet ups with him, uh, at different breweries and different stops, the Super Bowl at the combine. And, you know, he is, you know, there, I think there are people who in our business, you know, and I've, um, I've tried to catch myself every time I do it, you know, getting cynical, um, about what we do every day and, and not really, you know, making time to earnestly answer everybody's questions, but he understands that so well. And, you know, anytime, you know, even if people are asking him questions about stuff that he's written, you know, he doesn't say, well, just read my column. I mean, he gets, really excited about it, really passionate about it. And, um, you know, that's one thing, maybe the, the one thing that I took away most from him is just to always remember how lucky we are to be able to do this for a living and, you know, and that we have to pay it forward because there are, you know, there are people who, uh, who really love what we do. And, and, you know, so just kind of keep that, that cycle flowing. Now I know initially the word was, is that, you know, there wouldn't be another Peter King, and then in the last month or so, like I kind of want to think I understand what they were saying that Albert Breer is kind of the new Peter King, but not really. It's like different, but the same. Um, and I guess it doesn't really matter what exactly his role is. But I know that Albert can be a little bit more polarizing as a as an individual. You know, some people love him, some people can hate him, and I respect him. I love the way he says what Albert thinks and doesn't back down. And I really respect that about him. Um, what about for you uh, working with Albert? And, and I mean, and I'm, I'm trying to ask this as, as gently as possible because I don't want to put you in a bad spot. I really? Oh, I, no, no. Yeah. And really, I'm not asking anything controversial. I'm really just asking, what is it like working with Albert as opposed to Peter? Really? That's all it is. I don't know why I put it in more of a inflammatory way. I really didn't mean it that way. <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, I totally get it. Um, you know, well, Albert was another guy that, um, you know, I was lucky enough to work with before I came, uh, to the MMQB. We were at NFL network together. Um, and so, you know, that was a guy that, you know, I, I, you know, would have to read his stuff every week just because it, I felt, you know, um, I felt it was really important. You know, he had the game plan column at, um, at NFL Network and on NFL.com. And, you know, we would wake up every, um, I think, I forget what day it came out. It might have been Thursday. Yeah, I was going to um, say Thursday. Or Wednesday. I think it was Thursday. Yeah, and, um, right. you know, you, you know, you wake up and then, you know, we were kind of on shift um, as bloggers back then. And so you read that and you, you 
go, wow, I get, I can get six posts out of this. You know, I mean, he's, he's super connected and, you know, what's cool about him, uh, like Peter, you know, really willing to help you out to connect you with, um, with people. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that in terms of, you know, whatever you want to call it, the transition or whatever it's been, you know, it's been great. You know, Albert, um, you know, uh, brought Jenny and I onto the MMQB podcast, um, you know, and it's, it's just been, it's been super cool, especially watching him and Jenny talk. I mean, between them just have so much football knowledge. It's insane, you know? And so I just, I try to at least pop in with like, something halfway useful but um you know just the the brain power that's involved there is uh, is really something i mean I, I would put our staff up against any any site that covers the nfl um around today you know someone who knows him as well as you do and has worked with him is he a good example of something you know i wonder if in 2018 i guess it's 2018 right now uh, I wonder if in 2018 we make a mistake sometimes in assuming too much about a person based on an opinion they tweet because it's not the same opinion as ours, right? I mean, do you think he's a good example of that? That, And, and it's not even about his opinion, just opinions in general. Do you think in general we make this mistake sometimes in, in, the, in the bubble of social media that we will judge a, an entire person for like 180 character or whatever it is now tweet or whatever? Like, And you could take him out of it if you want. It, it just made me think of it. Like, Is that a good example um, of a mistake we can make kind of in the social media bubble or whatever? For sure. I mean, you know, I think one of the things that I did that I initially regretted um, was <laughs> purging my Facebook after the election. Um, I think that, you know, b- because it, it took me away from, you know, the thought of like, you know, why people would think this way or, you know, why people would do this. And, you know, uh, you know, this is just my own personal experience, you know, a couple of things that I've written opinion pieces for, for SI, um, since I've gotten hired here, have certainly been political in nature, given, given the climate. And I've heard from a lot of people on Twitter, um, saying, you know, this isn't fair, this doesn't represent the other side. And so, you know, within reason, I've tried to start reaching out and just saying like, well, what do you mean by this? And well, don't you see that from my perspective? And, you know, obviously you're going to get people that have no interest in having a conversation, but I think that I've been encouraged by, yeah, I think I've been encouraged by the conversations that I have had where people have just been like, yeah, you know what? I, I never thought of it this way. I grew up in this place and with these kind of people. And, you know, this is just how my life is. And so, you know, I think just sort of a super general answer um, to your question, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we're always quick to make that mistake. Um, I would say that the one thing that I did know about Albert from social media uh, before uh, working with him at the MMQB was his, uh, his love of Ohio State, and I will say that that holds over pretty well. He, is, uh, he, is, he still loves Ohio State in person, so that is a safe judgment to make that uh, – <laughs> he loves Ohio State on Twitter and loves Ohio State in person, too. And I absolutely love Marshawn Lattimore, so uh, we can all agree on that. <laughs> there you go. Um, the, uh, you know, we can put our – you guys thinking what you were saying there. It's like we put ourselves in, in sort of these echo chambers sometimes, right? Because we all do it no matter what opinion you, you, you tend to favor. You will maybe watch the news channel that leans that way or watch the um, – I read the newspaper editorial that leans that way, or like you said, follow the Facebook people 
um, that post that way. We kind of get ourselves in these echo chambers. And I know personally I try really hard. Like Jeff Perlman is a really good friend of this show and sort of a friend of mine. And Jeff is a very extreme uh, left-leaning uh, political representative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tend to be much further to the right than Jeff, although not as far right politically from center as Jeff is left politically from center. But still, that ends up being right. a big gap, you know, because Jeff is so far out there. And what's great about our relationship is we can really kind of battle about our disagreements, but really kind of enlighten each other about the the reasonable, the, where the reasonable is in the in the other side of whatever pillow we might be laying on at that moment. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, yeah. and I yeah. think through my, through the interactions with Jeff, I, it, it kind of, kind of has, has helped me say like, wow, Jeff can be really, really out there left, but we can have really, really, really great constructive conversations and really understand each other better and make navigating the political insanity in 2018 so much easier. And it kind of has made me realize like, do this more, like reach out more, like, you know, break your own echo chamber more. And I think um, that's sort of what you were saying about, you know, purging the Facebook and different things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I think the challenge with the, with the media today, and I feel really bad for, you know, really good, hardworking reporters from all walks of life and all levels of news that basically have everything that they do discounted. Um, because of, of the climate that we're in. And I think that, you know, the challenge that they face is that, you know, it, there are some things that are going on right now that you have to mention that, hey, this is not normal, this is not okay. And I understand that it's the person that you like that's saying these things, but we're just letting you know that this isn't normal, this isn't okay, and this is how it's affecting you. And I think that the pushback um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, further sort of, uh, scrambles everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's really the balance that everyone's trying to find and the balance that everybody's trying to strike. But to your point, I mean, some of the best conversations that I've had, like you just feel invigorated to talk to someone who disagrees with you, but in a friendly way, um, and just have like a really sharp, fun conversation. And, you know, that happened a lot around the election. I'm lucky to have, you know, smart friends, um, know a lot more about this stuff than I do. And, you know, it's just been cool, you know, I mean, just to, to hear what they think, um, uh, to they're gracious enough to listen to what I think. And, you know, I think that's what we sort of lost. I think if, if you have to mourn the loss of, of anything in, in terms of our political discourse, it's the ability to sit down and have a beer with someone and say, Hey, this is, I think this is ridiculous. And, but, but, and then not, not get a pool cue kind of breaking up right. <laughs> over your back. <laughs> yeah. Last thing on this, then we'll move on. How do you respond to someone who takes this this stance, which I think is a little bit different than anything we've talked about so far? How do you respond to someone who says, look, I totally get that not everything, that there is some crossover here, and I totally get that you know, there's some new normals in 2018 that maybe aren't so normal, but you know what? It's so, it's so overwhelming that when I go to MMQB, I just want to take a break and read football. Why can't you just give me football? It's not the, hey, stick to football argument because I think your politics suck and I don't, I'm going to discount them just because you're giving them. It's the argument of, hey, I totally respect that you probably know about politics, but please, it's so overwhelming. I just want to read football. Let's just talk about if the Giants picking Barkley instead of a quarterback was smarter. 
than or, or not as smart as, as what they did. You know, something like that. Like, how do you respond to that argument or that fan? Yeah, uh, I think Albert really brought up a good point on our podcast. I think it was a couple days ago, or, or maybe it was last week's podcast, where he said it's kind of like Netflix where, you know, you go on Netflix and all you want to do is unwind and watch The Office. Um, but House of Cards keeps coming up. And, you know, you like House of Cards. House of Cards is fine. It's important. But you don't you don't want to watch House of Cards right now. But it just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And it won't let you watch The Office. You know, and and everything you click on ends up turning into House of Cards. And, and, and then that makes you want to tune out. It makes you want to find a place where you can watch The Office and nobody bothers you. And, you know, that that's an escape. Um, my counter argument to that is that you know this is a time and place in history where i we we don't know you know we i don't think we have a choice and you know i mean the president is talking about the nfl the president of the we are you know the, the kind of like to see ourselves as sort of the trade publication of of the objective trade publication of of the nfl and you know the president is talking about it the players are talking about the president the coaches are having to deal and owners and GMs are having to deal um, with stuff that directly comes from the white house. And so um, I, I, it's certainly something that we never expected. Certainly not me when I first started covering a team in 2010, but you know, for the people who have that, that political exhaustion um, I, you know, I, I understand, but at the same time, it's something that I don't think anybody's really um, anybody really knew what to do. You know, I think this is the times that we're in now are so unprecedented that, um, you know, if the president's talking about the NFL, we have to, we have to write about it. Yeah. I think one of the worst things about president Trump is the, his ability to make everything about president Trump, you know, and I, (laughs) I know I personally try to fight back on that as much as I can, you know, like, I don't know. Maybe Jeff's a good example. Like when Jeff comes on in a, in a couple of weeks here to talk about his USFL book, like I'm going to fight as hard as I can to talk about all the other pages in that book because every time I've read or listened to something from Jeff about that book, everyone goes right to Trump. Tell mm-hmm. me about tell me about Trump fucking up that league. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> that's a cool part of that story, but it's a 500 page book. You know what I mean? Like I want to talk about some of the other 30 pages. Or the other, uh, excuse me, the other um, 30, no, it's less than that, 30 minus 520, the other 490 pages of that book, you know, that aren't about him. Um, so I try to fight that a little bit, but uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Connor Orr is here from MMQB. I actually reached out to him to talk about this awesome piece he wrote about quarterbacks and quarterback rooms and mentorship, and we're 20 minutes in, and we haven't even mentioned it yet, so let's fix that. <laughs> this is what we're talking about. The yeah, he does. <laughs> Bastard. Um, look at I love the piece. I thought there were some really cool anecdotes in there, like, uh, you know, who was it? Baker and Drew Stanton, I think, and, like, screwing up the band name. And um, uh, what else was it? There was a few just kind of cool anecdotes about how these guys kind of interact with each other and the way they relate and the way they break the age gap, you know, the 10-year difference or whatever, the, whatever it might be. And I wanted to ask you because I got to think you had a cool anecdote that hit the cutting room floor maybe. Was there anything you didn't put in there that you thought was pretty cool about – the way these dudes interact with each other and, and sort of mentor with each other that 
is along the same lines of Drew Stanton screwing up a band name or, you know, uh, who was the, who was the quarterback that would go to sleep and then wake himself up? Oh, Hasselbeck, right? He'd go to sleep and then he'd yeah, set his alarm yeah. so he could meet Luck at the bar and then try to convince Luck that he wasn't asleep, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I would say my favorite that didn't make it in uh, was uh, when when Matt Hasselbeck got the job in Seattle. I mean, obviously, we, we put all this stuff in there about Trent Dill for buying him wine and, uh, you know, proportionate to the difficulty of the, the touchdowns that he threw and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that that was a great story. But, you know, he also, um, during his career, he beat out Rick Meyer for a job. And Rick Meyer was like the, the famous Seattle Seahawks bust. Um, Ended up having a nice long career in the NFL as a backup, and when you know when he beat out Rick Meyer, uh, he said, "Okay, well, you know, uh, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, you've never had coffee before, so I'm gonna take you to Starbucks." And this is back before Starbucks was like a big thing. Uh, he's like, "You're gonna be in Seattle. Um, you're gonna need to know how to order coffee. You're gonna need to know how to drink coffee." You're going to need to know what's in the coffee. So I'm going to take you to Starbucks, and I'm going to teach you, you know, this is what makes a Cafe Americano. Cafe Americano, they dilute the espresso. So, you know, all this stuff. And, like, you know, I'm just picturing, like, two dudes. Like, you know, Matt Hasselbeck at that point in his life was probably, like, four years removed from, like, doing keg stands at Boston College. And now he's, like, learning about uh, espresso beans from Rick Meyer. And, like, what a weird life that every, that we all kind of live and, and work in. So, um, but I was lucky. I mean, you know, all the quarterbacks I talked to, you know, um, I don't think Mark Brunel ended up making it into the story, but so much of what he had to do with Mark Sanchez was just constantly take shit from him, you know, about being 40 years old. And so I think that, uh, you know, I was lucky a lot of, a lot of quarterback, there's a good sort of roving pack of these veteran mentor quarterbacks and uh and they're really they're such a good group of people to talk to i don't know why he keeps coming up but there is a story in jeff perlman's um brett Favre book i don't know if you read it gunslinger it's actually a great book but there's a story in there about brett Favre. well there's a few stories in there about brett Favre and aaron Rodgers and how this mentoring setup just didn't work I think like the first thing Aaron Rodgers said to Brett Favre was something about him looking like a grandfather or something like that, and you know, I mean, they both, you know, had their role in not making it work. But did you discover any current um, examples of the opposite of what your story is about? Just quarterback rooms where this just doesn't work out like this, where the quarterback. You know, I don't even I don't even think it necessarily is a, a negative of them. You know, some dudes just aren't wired to be mentors like that. You know what I mean? Did you did you discover any rooms or examples where it just was closer to the Five Rogers situation than the Mayfield Stanton situation? For sure, yeah. I mean, and I think that you know, really, outside of the obvious, um, you know, outside of the obvious ones where there are mentorships, you know, like. When this happens now, general managers go out of their way to make sure that everyone knows that this is the deal, you know, and they explain it to the player. Uh, they explain it to the rookie um, and because, you know, that's how they understand the way that these people work psychologically, you know, that, you know, Darnold is going to be better if he's got a strong mentor behind him who's not, you know, uh, threatening to take his job away every day or whatever, you know. And so I think, like, you go back to, you know, when the Seahawks signed Matt Flynn to that big contract and Russell Wilson came in, I mean, he's not 
he's not there to mentor Russell Wilson. And, uh, you know, any of those situations like that, um, where you've guys around the same age, I'm sure Josh Allen and Nate Peterman are like that in Buffalo right now, which is why I'm so surprised they got rid of AJ McCarron and traded him to the Raiders. Um, I think that a lot of rookies need that, that guy behind them, because if you don't have someone in a meeting showing you how to prepare, how to digest all this information, it can be so easy to get lost in the weeds. And, you know, we saw it with, with a lot of these guys that just sort of flame out because they can't or don't want to learn an offense. I was going to ask, you mentioned the Jets room, and I was going to ask you about that, because I know that the Jets traded Teddy, Teddy Bridgewater, and obviously they got a nice asset back from the Saints in that trade, so I get it from that standpoint. But did you get a sense at all that that trade was just as much about saving Sam from the conversation every time he's won TD and three interceptions in a game of maybe we should see what Teddy has? Like, was that as much about giving this job for better or for worse to Darnold as it was about getting a third-round pick or whatever, or was it strictly just a compensation I, decision? I, I I don't like I never heard anything confirming that in the reporting, but I would say that you know it, it would certainly make sense to me. Um, you know, I know that I think that they you know they went into it really wanting to do two quarterbacks on the roster and one on the practice squad. I think that was kind of the, the way that they wanted to. Um, to organize everything because Todd Bowles has a lot of versatility on defense and needs like that extra roster spot for um, for a, maybe a linebacker or a swing defensive end or something like that. But um, you know I, I, what it was really interesting was listening to Darnold talk um, was that he was just as complimentary in terms of the frequency of uh, of Teddy Bridgewater being a mentor as Josh McCown. And you know obviously he loves Josh. They've Developed this sort of father-son relationship, but um, you know, I thought it was interesting that he said that Teddy was just as helpful when he was there, just as encouraging, um, just as willing to kind of show him a little bit about what he does and uh, and how he learns. And I have to believe that that was was super valuable too. And I think that the Jets just you know really got lucky. I think it says a lot about maybe their pro personnel department where they can understand the egos and the fact that they can all work together because, I mean, around the league, you see it. I mean, you look at what's going on in Pittsburgh right now. There's certainly, uh, when not, not enough attention is paid to the personalities collectively, um, some really bad things can happen. Yeah, Pittsburgh is a great example. I mean, they just seem to have so much bad juju going around. No no pun intended, but they seem to just have so much bad <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it started with Martavis Bryant. That well, maybe even started before this, but I, I think of that Martavius Bryant tweet when they drafted uh, Juju about how someone else is going to lose a job, and then you know every time it seems like Antonio Brown isn't the one making a play, he can kind of be pouting. I mean, we know what's going on with Le'Veon Bell. It's like that that locker room feels like a mess. Um, but uh, you know, you mentioned like the Jets getting lucky I, I feel like you know a lot of people I'm sure Jets fans would say they were due for some luck but I mean who knows what the what the conversation will be, be in the end of the day between Baker Mayfield versus um, Sam Darnold but I mean either way you know the Giants took Barkley so they were going to get one of those two guys regardless and that just seems mm-hmm. crazy I mean you look at I mean, we were talking about Meyer right I mean it was Meyer and Bledsoe Right, it was Manning and Leaf. Like it's usually always like the two quarterbacks. Right? Uh, was it Newton and Griffin? I think it was the Newton year, right? That Griffin was second. 
I think. Uh, maybe I'm uh, Or was it Luck and, it was Luck Luck and Griffin? Griffin. Luck yeah. and Griffin, that's and right. And then I think it was Newton, and that, that was another year. I think Newton's year was another one of those weird years like this year where it was like Newton and then like uh, it might have been like Jake Locker at eight or Blaine Gabbert maybe. Right, Locker Gabbert. and Gabbert were both top ten. Yeah, one was eight and one was ten, I think, right? Oof. <laughs> Oof. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, just like yeah. the point, I guess, not really was like whose draft was whose, but like – Wow, like what a what an all time break for the Jets. Like wow, the Giants took the running back and we got to pick one of the top two quarterbacks at three. Because that's Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, that that's a lot of credit, you know. I think the one thing that we don't realize and you know, I was lucky enough to be able to do kind of a longer story on this when I work at the NFL with sort of the um I don't know what you want to call it, um, but sort of the, the insider research that's being done, being able to understand uh, who the people in front of you are picking, you know? Um, and I don't think that McTaggart would have made that move without some assurance that, um, you know, either Baker or, um, or Sam Darnold would have been there. And I think that a lot of that has to do with understanding Dave Gettleman, knowing, uh, I guess, hearing somewhere through the grapevine that they were going to make a push for the division this year, um, and they were going to try to to load up with the rookie running back. And so, you know, uh, just because imagine if they didn't, if they really thought that the Giants would have taken Sam Darnold um, or Josh Rosen um, or any of these guys, would they have left it up to doubt or would they have tried to go up and somehow get the number one pick or been more aggressive with it. But I think that, um, I think it could go down as one of the most interesting drafts that we've had in probably the last 10 years, just because of how different and how far apart the evaluations were in the quarterbacks. But I think the upside, especially for guys like Darnold and Mayfield, they think is, is going to be really high. Well, yeah, I don't know if you just answered this or not, but I was going to ask you, because you were talking about your reporting of, of them kind of having a feeling that the Giants were going to go with Barkley. Did they? So then, in your opinion, did they view Baker and Darnold as a tier that were the only two worthy of three? Or do you think that they would have – like, do you, do you know if they would have been interested in Rosen or Allen or, I mean, even uh, Lamar Jackson at um, – at a th- at three, or do you think that they were only interested in doing that because they were pretty sure they're going to get one of those two? I think that's a, it's definitely um, you know I think it's definitely an interesting question. Um, I would guess that no matter what, like say if it would have been Mayfield, Darnold one two, I'm pretty sure they would have you know. And this is just me speculating and kind of like reading the tea leaves. I'm pretty sure that they would have taken. Either either Rosen or um, Rosen or Josh Allen. Josh I'm, Allen yeah. I'm fairly certain that would have happened. Um, I think that the directive there, going into that draft, was to finally, you know, quit screwing around with with journeyman veteran quarterbacks and to get someone that we can we can build an offense around. And so I think that no matter what, they probably would have taken somebody. But you know, I think you know every NFL GM and coach is, is good at rewriting history uh, for, for their benefit and uh you know 20 years down the road uh for the sam darnold football life we'll have mike mccagney <laughs> saying ah we knew the giants were going to take Saquon <laughs> barkley so we were golden you know so yeah. i think that's that uh, you know that might how it plays out in the future but uh you know i think uh if nothing else they just got uh, fantastically lucky uh connor or is at connor or on twitter it's c-o-n-o-r-o-r-r 
uh, and he is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. Uh, it's the MMQB.com. Um, if you type in MMQB.com, you, you go somewhere else. It's not football. Uh, also, the furniture. Furniture, furniture store. yeah, that's right. I was there yesterday. It was be- It's a beautiful website. Uh, also, <laughs> uh, the column we're talking about mostly today is uh, in the uh, in this newest edition of Sports Illustrated, the magazine, uh, which is still awesome. And even if you don't like to read magazines anymore, I always say that Sports Illustrated looks amazing on an iPad. So uh, don't be afraid. Yeah, yeah, don't be afraid to find it there because it. That's how I read it now because you can get it earlier. Like, like when I was a kid, like you were talking about being a subscriber, I was a subscriber too, like from age 10. And I would run home from school on Thursdays knowing it would be in my mailbox. And then that was my routine for years. And then iPad came out and there's a digital version. And I found out that on Tuesday night going into Wednesday morning at midnight, that thing would, would show up on there. And it was like basically getting it almost two sleeps early. So uh, iPad is a, a great way. Uh, to get it. All right, I'll get you out of here on this. Let me just ask you one general NFL question because I'm curious about this always. We're two weeks in, and it's that really hard time where we're trying to react to everything we see, and you don't want to go too much one way. You know, I know as a Saints fan, I'm like trying not to panic. Like, oh my God, we got run out of the building by Tampa Bay and almost, you know, lost to the Browns, and oh boy. But like, then I'm on the other, my other shoulders, like, well, we suck in September. That's the Sean Payton Saints. Like, you know, be glad we got a win at least, you know. But um, what are you reacting to the most in the sense of what is something you've seen or a few things that have surprised you or changed your opinion or something? Like, what is something you, you're reacting to in the first two weeks that you feel pretty comfortable isn't an overreaction, but is you seeing something that is pretty reflective of what it is? Uh, I think that I caught some flack for, you know, uh, for being reactionary for saying that Khalil Mack could win defensive player of the year. And I don't think that that is at all an exaggeration. I think that the bears could go 500 without an offense that just by punting, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, six or seven, whatever it is, eight or nine times a game. Um, uh, he's been spectacular. He's motivated. Um, certainly when a coach kind of tosses you to the wayside like that, uh, it'll, it'll put a tremendous chip on your shoulder and just the people around him, I think are really good. And, you know, so I, I don't think we're overreacting to how good the Bears defense looks right now. I don't think that we're overreacting to how good Patrick Mahomes is. I, I think I'm really fascinated by what Andy Reid's done. I think this is the most fun he's ever had, um, with a quarterback sort of hand selected a guy that, that really sort of jives with, with what he wants to do offensively. Um, and so, you know, obviously Patrick Mahomes isn't going to throw 85 touchdowns this year. I mean, it's just not possible, but um, it's still cool. I mean, I think that this is, this is going to be a really fun season. I think if, if, if this stays the course, if, if this season continues on the course that it's going on right now, um, I wrote a couple weeks before the opener that if, if something like this could happen, this is the rebound season the NFL needed. They needed a season where they introduced some young, exciting stars that are going to be around for a while, um, and they managed to somehow keep the politics out of it. I think that they're they're going to be fine. And we've seen, I think, what did CBS say? The ratings were up 23% for the opener. Um, yeah, like the, the local year. games are doing great. Like the 1 o'clock window, the four, like those yeah. are doing great. The only decline they've had at all are in the, like a little bit of the night games, and that just might be a little bit of fatigue, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, so I think, games. and I think fatigue is always going to be a part of it, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I don't think that's ever going to change. But the money is just so real, and um, you know, all these networks are just grasping at straws because you know ratings are down for everything. Everything. The one yeah. thing that has proven to be, um, you know, pretty solid is the NFL, and so they're going to pay through the roof for it. So there's no reason to not show less football. To you know, they're they're going to try to spread it out as many nights a week as possible. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. Because I mean, these these games are DVR proof, right? It's like the one thing I watch where I'm not fast forwarding through commercials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick, you, you mentioned Mahomes. I don't know if you remember the game or if you looked at the box score, but when we hang out, check this out. So Mahomes last year at Texas Tech, it was Baker's junior year at OU. They played a game with the most ridiculous box score you will ever see. I mean, I think Mahomes had, like, seven TDs and a rushing TD and a loss. You know, like, D.D. Westbrook had, like, 200 yards receiving. Mixon had, like, 200-plus yards overall. You know, big, I mean, you just got to look at this box score. It was a crazy game. I remember it was on ABC. It was, like, the ABC 8 o'clock game, and I think it went to, like, 1 in the morning. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, like, the offense would come out. It would be a boom, 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 touchdown, commercial, extra point. Commercial. I mean, it's just the longest game I think I could ever remember, but you got to check out that box score. It's crazy. All right, Connor. I, I oh. love that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I, I love that. I mean, I think that's great. If that's where the league is headed, I'm, I'm all for it. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it was, a fun, it was a fun game. It's a crazy, crazy line to look at. Uh, again, it's C-O-N-O-R-O-R-R on Twitter. Anything else you want to plug or promote? No, I mean, just, you know uh, – you subscribe to the magazine and go to go to si.com as much as possible. I think it's the best sports website in the world, and uh, and I'm really proud of uh, to be able to work with a bunch of awesome people there. So check out everything that they do. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for all the time. I really had fun just kind of shooting the garbage a little bit about some stuff. I know we got off track a little bit in the beginning, but that um, yeah, was fun. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Getting off track is uh, a point of life. So, and anytime. I appreciate you having me on. All right, I want to thank Connor Orr and Scott Burnside for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find today's show and last week's show with Joe Buck on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports underscore casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters, and you can email me, uh, sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, one more shout-out to my friends. Well, let's give a few shout-outs to a few different friends. First of all, my boy Adrian Dater. Uh, works for something called BSN Denver, uh, and nobody covers the Colorado Avalanche better than Adrian and BSN Denver. You can check his work out. He's at Adater on Twitter, and he's got all kinds of links to discounts and subscriptions. Uh, BSN Denver is a great service. Check it out. Also, don't forget my boy Peter Winson. If you're a wrestling fan, the best one-man wrestling show there is. Uh, it's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Want to give a shout out to Scott and Justin of the Place to Be Nation podcast. They're going to be recording their 500th show this week, which is amazing. Shout out to them uh, for 500 shows. You can find them at placetobenation.com. They're cu- currently doing a really cool uh, 80s 
music tournament, which you can vote on there. All right, one last thing today, and I kind of said in the open, I kind of want to make these more personal and a little bit more of a, a, a look into my soul, so to speak. And I don't know that if this totally qualifies, but I wanted to share uh, a story about my dealings with DirecTV. Now, I have DirecTV at my house, and I've had DirecTV at my house since I bought the house, and there's a very simple reason for that, is I need DirecTV to watch the Saints games. You know, nothing that comes on TV is more important to me than the Saints games, so if that's the way I need to watch them, uh, that's the service we have. So, DirecTV isn't cheap, uh, per se. Uh, we uh, It's probably the most expensive bill we pay that is in our mortgage. Um, so it's not cheap, but you pay for it because I need the Saints. Well, another thing that's not cheap is the NFL ticket. It's actually up to like, if you get the full Sunday ticket max, which you need for Red Zone, it's basically like $65 a month for six months. So obviously I'm not paying that much because that's absurd. Uh, so every year around this time, I have to call DirecTV and you know you threaten to cancel. You do whatever you can to try to get them to discount it. Uh, so... I, I called them the other day, and I said, listen, long-time subscriber, I'm loyal, I love DirecTV, I'm not a cord cutter, I'm like, but you got to do something for me on this ticket. And they said, sure. Sunday max is $64 a month, the regular package is $45, i will just give it to you, give you a Sunday max for the $45 price, $45 for six months. And I said, ah, oh, that's not going to cut it. So she said, well, what if I gave you $5 off Showtime, which you already pay for, for six months? I said, well, that's nice, but I'm still probably going to cancel then. It's just not going to do it for me. So she finally said, oh, well, I see you're out of contract. Would you be willing to enter a one-year contract with us? And I said, well, it depends, because if you don't give me a good deal on this direct on this Sunday ticket... I'm going to cancel, so no, I won't enter a a contract. So what she ended up doing was she gave me a 12-month credit of $30 a month if I was willing to enter a one-year commitment with them, which she didn't know it at the time, but I could care less about entering a commitment with them because I need the ticket. So I'm not going to get rid of this anytime soon. So this is how it breaks out. So $65 a month for six months. And then she immediately took it down to 45 And she gave me $5 off Showtime a month for six months. Same period. So we'll call that a discount of $5 on the ticket. And then she gave me a $30 credit for 12 months on the ticket or on my, on my bill. So that brings the whole thing down to... a month for six months, and then I'll still get a $30 credit for the six months after that. So I crushed DirecTV on that phone call. And then also, she mentioned that my equipment was obsolete and out to date, and they offered a free upgrade on that, and the guy came out uh, yesterday and installed everything. And uh, he was a really cool dude. Um, and we got new equipment. The only bad thing about it is you lose your DVR. You know, so you no longer have that, all those shows you saved. Uh, and also, which I, I didn't think of, but you no longer have your season passes set up. 
for things to just record. So you got to go back and set everything up. But it's nice new equipment. It seems to work better. We also had like a thing on the dish was rotting. And he fixed that. And he's like, if that didn't get caught, you know, it could have went out like on a Sunday at 1 o'clock. You would have had no signal. So overall, I think I won. I mean, I beat him up pretty good. You know, that's kind of what I do. I think I told the story about being at Pearl Jam with Greg and getting like $380 off our hotel stay. Uh, But I'm excited. Go Saints. See you next week.